going to start off a little funny this talk because I'm very in touch with right now how fragile my own um, creative process is. Um, the way I tend to prepare, sorry, I'll let you a little into it. Um, the way I tend to prepare for a Dharma talk is that I, um, it's like things come in and make connections. And then they kind of go up. The best way I can explain it is they kind of go up into a big star map. And there's these associations that are everywhere. And I and when the star map's in place, I can kind of walk through it and and um, and the talk comes by following the star map that's emerged. And the problem with the star map, the problem with my mind is that um, it's fairly voracious in terms of making connections. So it, um, it makes connections relatively quickly, sometimes, sometimes not so quickly. But, um, and so if something comes into the star map that, that doesn't quite fit, um, the whole thing can just go fall apart. So that's what I mean by fragile. And if I follow that map in a talk and all those connections are made in a talk, at the end of the talk, the whole map just collapses into dust. And, and what I find is I often can't make those connections ever again. I kind of have little pieces of it, but I can't actually, someone will ask me, oh, what did you say in a talk? And I have no idea what they're talking about. I really can't remember the associations. It's like the whole thing comes into being and then dies away. But sometimes it dies away before the talk happens, like today. <laughs> and so at first I felt a little sunken. Then actually I, um, I remembered Shantideva <laughs> and his admonishment around always remaining cheerful, which I'm not... I have not historically, I'm not karmically particularly good at. And then the next thought that came after that was, what if that had happened? Because we're on the day of celebrating the Buddha's awakening. Thank goodness. And I, I don't know that his creativity happened in internal star maps, but thank goodness it didn't collapse before he said something about it. That there was this period between, we often associate with his awakening, we often talk about his awakening under the tree, that it all happened under the Bodhi tree but there was this space and time between the Bodhi tree, and Laura talked about this earlier, between the Bodhi tree, his wandering around, and then it's wandering around, and then his teaching. And um, there wasn't initially an intention to say anything at all. He wasn't gonna say anything. 
was feeling pretty good. There was a lot of clarity. And he had this idea that there was no one that would be able to understand it because it, because the Dharma was too subtle. And then the gods had to convince him otherwise. And thank goodness they inter interrupted. But in that period, reminded me, this is something that I was going to um, quote, I was going to use that I was thinking about these two things. I'm going to patch it together one way or another. Um, this quote from Dogen in the Fukan Zazengi. Suppose one gains pride of understanding and inflates one's own enlightenment, glimpsing the wisdom that runs through all things, attaining the way and clarifying the mind, raising an aspiration to escalate the very sky. I'm going to read that sentence again. Suppose one gains pride of understanding and inflates one's own enlightenment, glimpsing the wisdom that runs through all things, attaining the way and clarifying the mind, raising an aspiration to escalate the very sky. Now, people read this different ways, but the way I read this is that Dogen is actually saying, you actually do have an awakening experience. There is clarity. He's saying, what if one gains pride of understanding? So it's not a pride without understanding. It's a pride of an actual understanding and inflates one's own enlightenment, glimpsing the wisdom that runs through all things, attaining the way, clarifying the mind, raising an aspiration to escalate the very sky. So there is this, there is this seeing. But even so, there's even so that there is this seeing, one is making the initial partial excursions about the frontiers, but is still somewhat deficient in the vital way of total emancipation. So the Buddha has this profound awakening and we talk about the awakening as under the tree. And there is a deep refuge, there is a clarity there, a refuge of, um, a refuge in the Dharma, certainly a refuge in the Dharma, a refuge in Mother Earth. Mother Earth is the one that the Buddha takes refuge in most directly. The Buddha isn't taking refuge in the three treasures yet because the three treasures don't even exist. The Buddha's taking refuge in the Dharma, the eternal Dharma and taking refuge in Mother Earth. And Mother Earth is the one to witness the Buddha. But the Sangha has not yet happened. Thought just come up. Maybe the Sangha is for those of us who it takes us some time to take refuge in the Dharma and take refuge in, the mother, in mother Earth. But... Um, There's an awakening, but this awakening, it seems, and I wanna read something else from Dogen to talk about this. 
this awakening may not simply be what happens. In other words, there's an awakening, but there is not necessarily, maybe, I'm being a little um, radical here in suggesting this, there may be something somewhat still deficient in the vital way of total emancipation at this point. Because it's in the teaching, in the first teaching that the Dharma wheel is turned. It's when the Buddha decides to teach and act out of compassion that the Dharma wheel is turned. And arguably the completion of the insight, at least in our way of understanding. In our way of understanding, the realization of the insight is in the compassion and action. The thing that happens for us, whatever arises in us, whatever seeing, whatever insight into karma, whatever insight into the nature of things, they're only a partial excursion. There's a um, It's a little frustrating. There was other stuff. I know there was other stuff, but it's not there. So I'm going to go to another quote at the end of the Genjo Koan. That quote that I just read was from the Fukan Zazengi. This quote is from the end of the Genjo Koan. Zen Master Baucha of Mount Mayu was fanning himself. This is the last paragraph. A monk approached and said, Master, the nature of wind is permanent. And here you can hear undying, eternal, other words too. Master, the nature of the wind is permanent and there is no place it does not reach. Why then do you fan yourself? Although you understand that the nature of the wind is permanent, Bhatshu replied, you do not understand the meaning of its reaching everywhere. What is the meaning of its reaching everywhere? The monk asked. The master just kept fanning himself. The monk bowed deeply. This is the connection between the Buddha's realization and the Buddha teaching. The Buddha realized that the eternal cosmic truth of the Dharma that existed before Siddhartha Gautama and will exist after Siddhartha Gautama. And that was going to be enough. And then it became clear from the encouragement of the gods that for that to be realized, the Buddha had to fan himself. The Buddha had to fan other people, had to fan the Sangha, had to realize the Dharma through compassionate activity, that there was no realization of the Dharma without the compassionate activity, that the dependently co-arisen nature of all things manifests through our activity. 
it isn't something that is happening somewhere else. It's happening in this gesture. It's happening in the way I speak to someone. It's happening in our connections with each other. It's happening in my following the precepts. It's happening in my not following the precepts. It's happening in my ability to apologize to someone that I'm angry at, someone who's angry at me. To recognize my lack of compassion in a situation, to recognize my lack of connection in a situation. To recognize my lack of compassion and connection with myself, with others. All of these are fanning. They're all our gestures. And those gestures are the movement of interconnected life. We talk about dependent co-arising, but we sometimes forget that we are actually that. That we are the, that each one of our gestures is the world touching itself, connecting to itself, life connecting to itself. What is the character of that gesture? What is the character of that interaction? The universe isn't simply happening. The Dharma wheel isn't simply turning. Our, the Buddha's words turn the Dharma wheel. The Dharma wheel turns because it is both an eternal truth and turns, but it also turns because human activity acting out the Dharma is turning it. And both of those things are happening simultaneously. <laughs> this is why our precepts are so important because our precepts, by honoring the precepts and following the precepts, we're choosing to turn the Dharma wheel. We're choosing to pay attention to ourselves as a part of intercausality, as a part of the causality of all things to take responsibility for ourselves as a part of the causality of all things. But we're not on the sidelines. None of us are on the sidelines. Even if we're staying home, not involving ourselves with anybody, trying to stay out of it all, we're still not on the sidelines. We can't get out of the wind that is everywhere. This goes on to say, the actualization of the Buddha Dharma, the vital path of its correct transmission is like this wind that is everywhere. If you say that you do not need to fan yourself because the nature of wind is permanent and you can have wind without fanning, you will, not, you will understand neither permanence nor the nature of wind. The nature of wind is permanent because of that, the wind of the Buddha's house brings forth the gold of the earth and makes fragrant the cream of the long river. This is what the Buddha did for us by teaching. 
This is what the Buddha did for us by teaching. This is what we do for each other by compassionate action to recognize that any pain that arises, <laughs> any pain that arises, the pain that arises because someone insults me, the pain that arises because I forget a talk, the pain that arises because um, I insult someone else, the pain that arises for whatever reason that the pain arises, there's injury in my body, there's physical pain, whatever it is, that any pain that arises is an invitation to compassionate action. Every single pain, regardless of what it is, is an invitation for compassionate action. Compassion may look thousands of different ways. It may look like stillness. It may look like firmness. It may look like cheerfulness. It may look like a lot of things. But it's not an invitation. And this is, you know, endless failure on my part here. It's not an invitation for defensiveness. It's not an invitation for justification. It's not an invitation for grasping onto our views. It's not an invitation for any of these things. Pain is not an invitation for those things. You can do it. We can all do it. We will. But we'll add pain. We're confusing the skillful invitation and the skillful response to the invitation. And I, I, I don't want to suggest for a moment, because our ancestors certainly did not talk this way, for a moment that compassion looks a certain way. I don't know what compassion looks like in a given circumstance. What matters is that my intention is the alleviation of confusion and the alleviation of suffering, not the defending of myself, not all of this other stuff. The Dhammapada gets really strict about this right out of the gate. There were, um, <laughs> speaking of, speaking of, um, I felt this was compassionate. Other people may not feel it's compassionate, but I asked for a translation of the Dhammapada that Kaishin couldn't find. So Kaishin brought me two, two translations, two different books. I read one. I read this one, and it's really wonder. It's very wonderful. It's it's by Bhikkhu Tanisaro. It's beautiful. I read the other one and I asked Kaishin to please remove it from the library. <laughs> because it is so confusing. The language is so confusing. It doesn't even sound like a Buddhist text. So I don't know if that's compassionate, but it felt compassionate because if anybody read it, they would, I feel they would actually not understand Buddhism, given this was translated probably 70 years ago. So so I, I feel sympathy for them, but it's really not very, it's not very helpful. But this one is quite lovely. Um, phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made of the heart. If you speak or act with a corrupted heart, then suffering follows you. As the wheel of the cart follows the track of the ox that pulls it, 
Phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made of the heart. If you speak or act with a calm, bright heart, then happiness follows you like a shadow that never leaves. Now here comes the hard part. (laughs) He insulted me, hit me, beat me, robbed me. For those who brood on this, hostility is not stilled. He insulted me, hit me, beat me, robbed me. For those who do not brood on this, hostility is stilled. Hostilities are not stilled through hostility, regardless. Hostilities are stilled through non-hostility, this an unending truth. Unlike those who don't realize that we're here on the verge of perishing. Those who do realize this, their quarrels are stilled. I wanna read the last stanza again. Unlike those who do not realize that we are here on the verge of perishing. Those who do realize this, their quarrels are stilled. I cannot tell you how many times I've read some version of those lines and did not like them. They sound good, but when I actually like take them in and try to act on, on um, the hostility of the world, the violence of the world, that seems to be so relentless and to really take seriously what's being asked by this tradition of somehow metabolizing that in our bodies in ways where we don't return the same. There's, you know, we see this everywhere right now. We sit Sashin really for this. I don't know that we sit session for anything, actually. We actually, in some ways, sit session for no reason at all. We like to say that. And that's important to sit it for no reason at all. And it's also important to recognize that we sit session because um, the Buddha is asking us to cultivate bodies that can carry out vows to awaken and do no harm the bodies that are fully awake as organs in the world that can sense the pain of the world and are disciplined in such a way that they can take in that pain, metabolize it, not harm ourselves with it because it's not personal and be released. Release ourselves, release the person we're in relationship to. So much easier said than done. I scan my life, when these words come out, I scan my life and I can see the places where I have, I need to give much more care to this than I have. Huge mountains of karma that need to be addressed. 
But in that um, meeting with hostility, where we're not returning hostility, not because we're repressing, not because we're, and this takes a long time, not because we're doing something harmful to ourselves with hostility. That's not no hostility. <laughs> That's just channeling the hostility with hostility towards ourselves. But to practice Zazen and to sit Sishin together so that we can cultivate these bodies that don't return hostility with, don't, don't return hostility to hostility. This is the fanning of the world. This is understanding that the nature of the wind is permanent through our caring for each other, through our caring for ourselves and through our caring for each other. That we're the, we are, we are life's, we're life's gestures. We are the Buddha's, we are the Buddha's gestures in the world. And I know this has been, um, I know this has been hard. Some people have struggled and um, maybe all have struggled. And it doesn't feel, I don't know where people are. I don't know how you're feeling. The only thing that I can say is, I know how some of you are feeling, but that was yesterday and today is different. And Sishin's people can turn in five minutes from one mood to an entirely different one. So you're in a different place. Everyone's in a different place. But this sitting together, um, you know, this really is, this is the gestures of our tradition and this is the cultivation of what it is to, to carry on the compassion and action of the Buddha when the Buddha first spoke the words of the Dharma and five people heard them and one person understood them. And at that moment, the Sangha began. And the Sangha was formalized over the years. And it became our place of refuge. For those of us who can't maybe feel the earth is our witness who the, for whom maybe the Dharma isn't fully clear yet, for whom touching into the Buddha and the devotion to the Buddha wavers at times. Um, understanding Buddha as who we are maybe wavers at times. Because the Buddha ultimately took refuge in himself. We don't often know how to do that or we're confused about what it is to take refuge in ourselves because to take refuge in myself is not to take refuge in small mind or small heart or confused heart or my karmic dispositions or anything like that. To take refuge in oneself the way the Buddha took refuge in oneself is to understand that the oneself that I'm taking refuge in is no different 
from the vastness of the Dharma is no different from the compassionate action that is connecting the gesture of life that is reaching out to touch itself. That is embodying the precepts. That is keeping an eye on all the self-interested, confused things we do that harm. That this little one is this little self, this self-grasping one. This is not the one we take refuge in. Not if we want happiness and peace and things like this. But um, so that little one must first take refuge in Sangha. And the Buddha was so clear about this. It's the greatest gift in some ways is that as we enter into the practice, we take refuge in each other. We take refuge in people who have the same set of intentions. And through that refuge, through that devotion, is how we come to understand that the nature of wind is everywhere. Through the particularities of our devotion, the particularities of our refuge, our particularities of our love for each other, our struggle with each other, our fighting with each other, our confusion with each other, our returning to each other. It's through all of that and really only through all of that, that we're going to come to understand how the nature of wind being everywhere requires the fanning. And the fanning is how the nature of the wind is everywhere. That they can't be pulled apart. We can't sit on a cushion and have a deep, profound realization and think that is it. As Dogen likes to say, there are no Buddhas, only Buddha activity, only awakening in our care for each other and for the world. So as we come out of this, wherever we are, it's all been good work. Whatever's going on in your minds, it's all been good work. It's all been the work of seeing. It's all been the work of awakening. It's all been the work of liberation. Even if you spend half the time groggy and sleeping or running through your thoughts, your body is still doing the Dharma. Your body is still doing stillness. Your body is still awakening to our, itself. Our bodies are still clarifying. And sometimes that clarifying looks like a whole lot of confusion. But that is what is necessary to clarify right now, is to see the confusion, is to experience it over and over and over again. But it is no less a process of clarifying. And it is no less a process of compassion, even if we're sitting there screaming at ourselves and recognizing that our voices are not particularly compassionate, that we are witnessing those not compassionate voices is compassionate. That we are being with them and that we are staying with them. That we're not abandoning them or going off somewhere else, but that we're actually being in a mutual embrace at that moment.
So like the Buddha, take refuge in yourselves. Take refuge in Mother Earth, take refuge in the Dharma. Affirm the life you're at the center of. We have to affirm the life we're at the center of. All of the ideas that there's some better way to be, some better way to practice, some better way to pull us right off our Dharma seat. We can't root ourselves in the place where we are. We can't be. If we want to, if we want that same stability that allowed the Buddha to weather all of the attacks, especially the doubt, especially the humiliation that Mara tried to throw at the Buddha at the end. We have to affirm the seat that we're sitting on. That doesn't mean grasping the mind we're dealing with. It means affirming the life and the seat and the place that we have found ourselves in. We might not know how to deal with that life yet or deal with that seat or any of that, but to love this one and to love this life and to understand that our value is without comparison. There is no comparison. There is no way to compare anyone's value. If the Dharma teaches us one thing is, especially in our Mahayana tradition, is that every person is an infinity unto themselves. Their value is absolute. Only the confused comparative mind challenges that. And it is confused. So thank you for taking your seat this week. And thank you for honoring the Buddha. Thank you for sitting with our ancestors. And thank you for holding yourself in compassion, even when it didn't feel like it. And thank you for holding each other in compassion, even though it often doesn't feel like it. May we continue on together for many, many years. in the Dharma, in this practice, and in our shared awakening. Thank you. <clears throat> May our intentions Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.